Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for March 26, 2021. Hello, uh, and thanks for listening to Foreign Exchanges podcast. As always, it's great to have you here. Um, it's been a little while, I think, a few weeks since we did a uh, an interview uh, that was available to the general public, so I haven't had to do this intro in a while, so uh, bear with me for a second. But uh, if you're new to Foreign Exchanges and you like this interview, if you're here uh, through a podcast app or what have you, uh, please come and check out the newsletter, the full newsletter where we have interviews, more interviews like this one, um, lots of content, lots of information on U.S. foreign policy, analysis, uh, and uh, news coverage uh, of U.S. foreign policy and international affairs. Uh, the uh, web address is fx.substack.com. Uh, come and check it out, and uh, hopefully you'll stick around. Uh, with that said, uh, I'm very pleased to uh, introduce here in a few moments uh, this week's guest, uh, Seamus Malik Afsali. Uh, Seamus is uh, a writer, journalist, analyst uh, whose work primarily focuses on the Middle East. Uh, you may have seen his writing in a number of places. Uh, he has his own Substack, uh, malikafsali.substack.com, which I will link to in the show description. Uh, Seamus is here to talk to us about the upcoming Iranian presidential election. It's not going not gonna to happen for a couple more months yet. We're talking about June. Uh, so we're getting a little bit ahead of the, the curve here, a little bit ahead of ourselves maybe uh, in talking about it. But I wanted to have Seamus on to sort of handicap the race as it looks. Uh, he's been doing a lot of writing and uh, tweeting and, and uh, you know, discussion of candidates and potential candidates and uh, where he sees things going. And so I think this is uh, this is as good a time as any uh, to sort of dig into this and see who may emerge or who already has emerged as a potential uh, future president of Iran. Uh, this election is important not only because uh, the incumbent Hassan Rouhani is barred from running. He's already served two consecutive terms. Um, he could run again in the future. I'm sort of foreshadowing part of our discussion here later on. Uh, but he can't run this time around. And so that throws the field wide open. Uh, it's really unclear whether Rouhani would have been able to win anyway, uh, even if he were permitted to run, because the state of Iranian politics uh, is very much in flux. It looks like sort of the... Uh, conservative, uh, let's say hardline kind of anti-U.S., um, you know, sort of uh, principalists, they like to call themselves, they, they adhere to the principles, they say, of the Iranian revolution. Uh, those guys seem to be ascendant. Uh, at the same time, though, as we know, sort of more pre-pandemic, the, the pandemic really put a damper on things. But pre-pandemic, there were uh, there was a lot of protesting going on in Iran. People fed up uh, with the weak economy, um, upset over perceived uh, 
incompetence or and or corruption, sort of uh, problems with the system. Uh, those protests have started to creep up, kind of uh, in isolated places here and there. Of late, uh, there was a, a a round of protests recently that may still be going on on some level uh, in Sistan and Baluchistan province, uh, which is kind of a remote. Uh, relatively remote part of Iran in terms of media coverage, in terms of information. Uh, so it's hard to judge exactly what's going on there on a day-to-day -day basis. But there have been protests. Um, there was an incident in which a number of people sort of fuel smugglers, or I, I would say more privateers to some extent, because they're not entirely uh, doing things illicitly, but people who take fuel and, uh, you know, deliver it over the border into uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and, you know, in that direction. Uh, a number of them were killed, uh, it seems, by Iranian border guards, and that led to protests. It's uh, led to some violence. Um, so, you know, there's still frustration out there. Now, there's always uh, a, 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 a some level of frustration in Sistan and Baluchistan, which is a predominantly Sunni province in a predominantly Shia country. And uh, the people there face uh, a certain level of kind of economic and social uh, and political dislocation and they they uh, that erupts from time to frustration over that sort of erupts from time to time uh, in the form of protests uh, but nevertheless it seems that there is a, a sort of steady level of uh, frustration with the system that is continuing uh, and that you know can can have some unpredictable uh, effects on voting on elections, uh, either in terms of the candidates or in terms of low turnout, which is something we saw uh, in uh, Iran's most recent parliamentary elections was not well, they were not well, well attended. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of fluctuations, a lot of, a lot of uh, unsteadiness in Iranian politics right now. And so, uh, you know, I want to talk to Seamus about that. Uh, again, we'll sort of get into some candidates, both declared and potential. Um, if you know anything about uh, Iranian politics and Iranian elections, then you know that to some extent they are managed before the fact by a, an institution called the Guardians Council, uh, which weeds out, quote unquote, unsuitable candidates. This is supposed to be done on uh, somewhat uh, I, I hesitate to say objective, but it's supposed to be done on some uh, on the basis of some some general principles, and yet uh, oftentimes seems that they're sort of just weeding out kind of ideologically unacceptable candidates and kind of winnowing the field down to a, a band of acceptable opinion from which a candidate or a, a victor will emerge. So you know, there's a lot of that to consider. Um, we'll talk about that again. We'll talk about some potential candidates. Uh, I have a few in mind. But I want to kind of see, uh, you know, if Seamus has anybody he's he's favoring at this point. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll bring in sort of the the uh, Iranian nuclear deal. I don't want this to become a whole episode uh, on the Iranian nuclear deal, but you can't talk about Iranian politics right now without getting into the nuclear deal. So there will be some discussion of that. Uh, and if we have time, uh, we may uh, take a little bit of a look ahead to the other top job in Iranian politics, uh, the supreme leader position, which um, you have to think is going to be coming open soon. The current supreme leader, uh, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, is old. He's you know in his 70s. Uh, he's never been 
in the best of health, or at least he hasn't been for several years now. Uh, it's something of a, a, a minor, I don't want to say miracle, but it's something, it's a bit surprising that he's lasted this long. Um, and so there, there has to be some uh, level of speculation about who may be in line to succeed him. He's not saying, but, uh, you know, it's, it's going to become an issue at some point. Uh, so we may talk a little bit about that if we have time at the end. Uh, mostly we're going to focus on the presidential election. So with that, uh, let me get Seamus on the line and we'll start the interview. All right. As I said in the intro here, I am being joined by Seamus Malik Afsali. His Substack newsletter is malikafsali.substack.com. Uh, again, I'll have a link to that in the show description. If you guys, uh, you should definitely check that out. Uh, Seamus, uh, thanks for coming on the show to uh, help us handicap the upcoming Iranian presidential election. Oh, absolutely, my honor. <laughs> so, um, I think I feel like every time uh, I talk about Iranian politics in an Iranian election for uh, what is predominantly a, an American audience, the first thing you have to, to say is that these things do actually matter because, of course, there is a perception uh, that's very uh, dominant in U.S. coverage of Iran that this is not um, a society where politics matters. It's sort of top-down. It's, you know, the, the mullahs. The mullahs are controlling everything. Um, but these elections do matter. And, and I've, you know, try, I've given my spiel on this in the past. But uh, if you could take, like, five minutes and explain to people why this is important, why, this, why these presidential elections and parliamentary elections, for that matter, uh, are relevant, uh, I, I'm going to give you the floor and let you do that. Um, I think, obviously, everyone who is familiar with Iranian politics knows that there are restrictions, very uh, major restrictions on what kind of political um, talk is allowed, um, what political philosophies are allowed to flourish in society. Um, but even if it is a kind of narrow uh, system where a lot of it is just variations on right-wing theocrats, there is significant enough debate to the point where these elections are extremely competitive and to the point where the Guardian Council at times has felt the need to disqualify uh, entire political coalitions out of existence because they think that they will pose a threat. Um, in addition, while the Supreme, I mean, the, the tier system of the Iranian political system in a very oversimplified sense is that there is a parliament, there is the presidency, and then there is a supreme leader above the president. And while the supreme leader uh, has final say over all the policies of the nation and can decree um, what he wants uh, if the parliament or the presidency um, doesn't want to or hasn't felt the need to, um, he does not really run the day-to-day -day affairs of the nation uh, in the same way that the president does. The president can set uh, the agenda for the country. It can move it in certain diplomatic directions that are uh, pretty significantly different than ones than the administrations preceding them or coming after them. Uh, they can set a much different tone, at least comparatively. Um, it's not very simply every politician that comes in is just a copy of the other there are 
differences, while slight in the grand scheme of things, if you were to compare them to, you know, Leninists or uh, Green Partiers, um, it is significant enough within that range that voting for the right candidate, if you're an Iranian voter, does matter. I, I yeah, I mean, I think you know, you, you one only needs to look at the last two presidents, uh, you know, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and now Hassan Rouhani, who's on his way out, uh, to understand that that. A, there is a difference between, you know, what you could, what is, you know, commonly termed sort of moderate or moderate reformist on the one hand uh, versus, you know, sort of conservative principalist candidates on one hand. On the other hand, they, they pursue different policies and uh, they're given the space to do that by the supreme leader. I mean, you know, Ayatollah Khamenei uh, could rule by decree. He could manage, micromanage everything about the country. But, uh, you know, these are the last two presidents have pursued markedly different policies in a range of areas, and he's allowed them to do that. Um, I, 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 I look at it to some degree, you know, as these elections are a chance for uh, Khamenei and, and that part of the establishment that's sort of uh, removed from day-to-day -day politics to understand where Iranians are at in terms of like public opinion and then respond to that. You know, they're not above politics. They're not like insulated completely from politics. They have to be responsive on some level uh, to what the people want. And I sort of, uh, you know, you can, I mean, you know, if this, I, I don't know if this is, is, uh, the way you approach it as well, but these elections kind of uh, provide some way to check on the pulse of the country and uh, sort of, you know, move forward in, in ways that people are, are looking for. Oh, I, I, can, I can easily see it from that perspective. I mean, you see what happens with other countries uh, over the years that did not have these kinds of um, elections and the leader is completely out of touch with um, what's happening, and eventually they get overthrown. I mean, the obvious example, the Shah. Um, previously, during the Shah's time, there were elections that were at least somewhat free. Um, they elected leaders that were essentially opposed to the agenda that he wanted to set. But eventually, the Shah banned more and more parties until eventually, I want to say there was only one left by the time the final election under his uh, government happened. And by that time, you are completely separated from the masses that you claim to rule, and you have no idea how to respond to them when they rise up against you. And now, that's not to say the Islamic Republic is not immune to not knowing what the masses want. I mean, they've been uh, the subject of many protests over the years, I mean, most recently, uh, some of the most violent since 1979. But it does provide them with a, a, a way to at least keep some of the tide back in that. And I mean, polling, independent polling can also back this up. I mean, institutions like the IRGC are very popular. Certain politicians, uh, at the very least, used to be popular. Rouhani used to be very popular, but now he's somewhere in like 10%, 5%. Um, th these are not politicians or political figures that uh, are, are just alien to the population being handpicked from uh, administ from institutions that nobody knows about are completely opaque. They are known to the people, and 
these elections do allow a certain air of legitimacy, if you can use that term. That's a good segue into my next question, then, which is before we get into kind of looking at individual potential candidates uh, for president, um, give us a sense of what the political mood is in Iran right now. It, it, seem, it strikes me as sort of, um, you know, going in a couple of different directions. On the one hand, there is a lot of frustration and I don't want this to turn into a, a, a an hour discussion on the uh, Iran nuclear deal or, you know, the Biden administration not rejoining it or whatever, because uh, we could get off on a real tangent. But uh, there is certainly a lot of frustration with how the last several years have played out with the Trump administration uh, restoring sanctions. And, and, you know, that's kind of blown back on Rouhani and the sort of moderate to reform community. Um, on the other hand, uh, there is, you know, as you mentioned, we did see these protests kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the strongest of them, sort of the largest and most violent of them uh, before the pandemic hit. Uh, that really showed a lot of frustration, not just with Rouhani, but with the whole system. Um, you know, a lot of people just very angry at, at their circumstances. Uh, the last year's parliamentary election, uh, the turnout was very low. Uh, I think somewhere around 40 percent, which is far below uh, the the target that Khamenei sets for these sorts of elections, because, you know, he, he, he wants the high turnout to sort of uh, you know, legitimize the the whole operation. Um, so, I mean, there's sort of a prevailing kind of frustration with everything, but I'm not sure how that uh, looks in terms of who's getting more support from from the people now. Which way the kind of political winds are, are shifting? There is a deep sense of alienation. I think. Um, to the reformists and to the conservatives. Um, there was a poll, uh, I can't remember who it was, I think it was from Stasis, that showed that about 11% of Iranians align themselves now with the reformists, and 11% also align themselves with the conservatives, but 48% of Iranians now no longer align with either faction. Um, there is a growing sense that the, you know, if you're if you used to be a reformist voter, someone who voted for, for example, Musavi or Khatami, that the reformers coalition has proved themselves completely ineffective. That whatever they do um, gets rolled back, or they simply don't want to rock the boat too much to begin with. And obviously, they're not going to go towards the conservatives because the conservatives, while they may have been proven right in some way about the JCPOA's inevitable failure. It's not like they're providing a better solution in any way. So a lot of people are stuck between a rock and a hard place. And that has sublimated into a lot of kind of bizarre shifts where individual politicians are starting to, that were previously unpopular, have gotten very popular off of the backs of criticizing the current administration, um, regardless of what faction they're in. Um, Especially uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who has gone from he, he's an incredible heel turn um, that I've been able to observe. In that he used like I think I I I've, I've written about this on my Substack, um, which if you're listening at home, you can go and read in more depth. But Ahmadinejad used to be the least popular politician in Iran. 
Um, like a lot of U.S. presidents, like even George W. Bush, even if he left office extremely unpopular, as soon as he left, like his popularity started going back up because everybody thought, oh, it must have been better back then, even only a couple months later. I'm um, going that didn't happen for him. That, after he left office, Rouhani's first term was so good to a lot of people that Ahmadinejad's popularity kept going down and down and down. Um, but now he's completely flipped the script and he is now the most popular politician in Iran by some polls. Something like an approval rating of like 69%, 70%, somewhere in that range. Um, he's done that by reinventing his image as someone who by virtue of being alienated to both the reformist and the conservative coalitions, that they despise him with every inch of their being, that he can be something of a real threat and maybe, like, actually change things in government, even though during his two terms in office, you know, he was establishment as they come. But people, I guess, don't remember that. Um, <laughs> it, 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 he's, he's also, and also, like... His popularity benefits from the fact that there are articles seemingly every day now about how there are politicians like um, Golam Hodod Adel um, who are talking about like, oh, Ahmadinejad's not going to come back. Like, you shouldn't talk about these things. And there's this sense from his supporters that they actively fear his influence. And that's a good thing, that the government should fear his influence. Um, so there's been like... Um, and also people like Ghali uh, Bov, who is the current parliamentary speaker, I mean, he's face-planted every single time he's run for president. Like 10%, yes. 11% yeah, of the vote. He's a like, monumentally unsuccessful, like, lifetime presidential candidate, yes. Yeah, like, ran so many times, that never does it. But he's gotten extremely popular as of late with the Iranian public because in his position as a parliamentary speaker, he's on TV every single day criticizing the president for not doing his job. And in that position that is at least somewhat separate from the conservatives, he's been able to kind of rock the popularity. Um, so it's this generalized anger toward the governmental system at large. And a lot of Iranian voters are trying to place their trust in somebody who they think is most able to go against that system within the current uh, political climate. Um, and that... And that manifests itself in stranger ways uh, than I think a lot of um, observers are used to, I think. I want to talk about Ahmadinejad. Um, I want to put, put that off a little bit because there are some technical, I think, challenges that his potential candidacy uh, yes, poses yes. to the system uh, to say the least uh, but I, I don't want to get I want to get into those kind of when we when we start you know kind of talking about candidates or potential candidates uh, but I think yeah I do think he yeah, I mean I read your piece that was one of the things that kind of uh, uh, I was looking at, at your substack and I was like you know this is this would be a good topic I know it's still like a few months out but uh, you know we should we should have this conversation and that was one of the pieces that kind of uh, uh, you kind of sparked me to start thinking about this stuff. Um, he is, he does benefit from the fact that he had, I mean, oddly enough, unexpectedly, I think, he had a huge falling out with Khamenei in his second term. And now he's like, 
you know, he's been, as you say, he's sort of d- divorced from either kind of end of the uh, the spectrum, and he gets to criticize everybody in a climate where people are frustrated with everybody. And so I think it, it's really worked out uh, oddly enough to his benefit. And of course, he's he's got this like. Uh, he's been doing this like Twitter account where he's oh, yeah. doing these like just... very Zen kind of messages to Westerners and like uh, it's just a very weird thing to watch this guy who was like you know just a, a total kind of hardline firebrand you know uh, guy as president reinvent himself as this like wizened uh, statesman who's you know offering pearls of wisdom and and you know critiquing everybody. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think I mean I think he's sort of. It, personifies uh what is a a kind of a strange moment uh in iranian politics and i i want to say like you you've been covering uh politics you know the the politics of the stuff at your substack which again i'm gonna have a link to the uh the substack but you've got a, a bunch of pieces um you know i think most recently was your piece on uh, the reformist movement that sort of uh you know they're they're i think you said they're entering the bargaining stage of <laughs> the stages of grief uh, as they sort of watch their chances of winning the presidency again slip away uh, um but i i want to move into sort of talking about specific candidates and the first one i want to talk about uh a because he's declared as opposed to some of these other people that we may get into who are not yet declared or may not be. Um, and B, because I think his candidacy highlights one of the big changes that has been happening in Iranian politics. Uh, and that's Hossein Dagan. Uh, you written about him uh, in the context of sort of the rise of the military as a political force in Iran. Talk a little bit about Dagon. Uh, talk about his chances uh, in in June, and sort of, you know, what the the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, the the increasing role um, that it has been taking in in Iranian politics. I mean, since the JCPOA fell apart, there has been this general, and especially since the Gulf crisis uh, started um, and Soleimani was assassinated, there's been this feeling among especially a lot of conservative politicians that there needs to be, I think the term is the war cabinet, that there needs to be an Iran government in place with a president who has military experience primarily, who will be able to lead Iran through what is inevitably going to be a stage of detente uh, with America. and, Hos- and there have been Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps members, officers who have, former, um, who have run before, um, and each time they haven't really gotten off the ground, because um, there is a general perception among a lot of Iranian voters that military experience isn't really that important, and even if they did have a lot of that, like, do we really want a government that is a government of the military? And... Hossein Dehgan, as a former military officer and someone who is currently a defense advisor to Khamenei, is trying to capitalize on that as someone who is not beholden to any political faction. He's trying to paint himself as an independent who will work for Iran and Iran alone, not conservative politicians or reformist politicians. And that means just straight on uh, against the United States and will make 
Iran's government work. They're trying to, a lot of the military candidates who are potential and currently declared are trying to paint themselves as someone who can break through institutional corruption, the mold, uh, the, uh, the ineffectiveness of the Iranian government, even if they themselves were from the same kinds of institutions. And it's not, despite the perceptions of voters, it's not totally unfounded. There is a kind of broad approval of the actions that the IRGC has taken abroad, but that kind of broad approval among the Iranian public does not necessarily translate into votes, at least not that you're able to see uh, in polling. I mean, Hossein Dehgan has a problem of uh, not being really known to the public. He has not had a media campaign in his favor. He just kind of, he declared very early for a reason. And that reason was he needed to build up his, uh, his perception with the public a lot. And he's done that. Um, I think more than any other candidate, he's gone on tons of different uh, interviews with international networks as well as national networks. But he hasn't been including any polling so far, unlike other candidates, which probably tells you that there isn't enough uh, want for him in polling to even offer him as an option. Not even to register. Yeah. Yeah. It's Uh, just, yeah, he's there. (laughs) I I, I want, I mean, I think, you know, and he... uh, Qasem Soleimani always played coy about whether he would one day kind of leave the military and and get into politics more directly. But I feel like um, there's both a response to the assassination and the need for the perceived need for a a candidate who has kind of got a military background. But there's also this vacuum now where if you were, you know, plotting out an election uh, at a time of high tension between Iran and the United States, Soleimani was the guy. I mean, he was the the star. He was the general rock star, uh, the one guy out of the IRGC that people knew that had, who had a public kind of uh, public, per, you know, kind of persona that that could play in a in a political context. The rest of these guys seem to me to just sort of be faceless generals who are you know maybe you know one or two of them kind of scrambling now to to fill that that same niche, but I, I, I don't think they have the, the, the charisma that he had. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the criticisms of Dek gone by like, even people who'd work with him was that he has no charisma. Like the, the point is, is that, I mean, Dek gone Said Mohammed, who is another IRGC general and active duty one who is running, they haven't one, they haven't had enough media exposure to really like create the kind of persona, even nearly what Soleimani had. But they don't really seem to know what to do in front of the camera. I mean, there's a video of Saeed Mohammed when he was um, uh, announcing his run. And he seems like almost bashful, like he's afraid to be in front of the camera. It's, there's, people are obviously, people who are backing military candidates want someone who can be a figure. And they see that in... Some of them see that in Dehgan, some of them see that in Muhammad, um, but it remains to be seen whether or not they can actually fill that void. But that may kind of be an impossible task, considering the shoes that Soleimani had. Um, so I, I do want to talk about uh, potential candidates. One of, the, one of the weird things, I mean, I, I haven't seen that many polls yet uh, of this race, but one of the strange 
features of the polling that I have seen uh, is that all the polls seem to be filled with people who haven't declared that they're running yet. Like there's there's not a lot of, of interest seemingly in the people who have already declared their candidacy. Uh, and there are some names in some of these polls that like there's no way they would even be allowed to run. Like I saw a poll with Mohammed Khatami, the former president. There's no way he could get past the Guardian no, Council and run. I mean, there's just no way that would happen. Uh, but he's in the polling. And I, I, I wonder if that's, you know, uh, indicative of sort of the the dearth of interest in any particular candidate that you're sort of wistfully polling on these guys who, who aren't necessarily running and might not necessarily be allowed to run. Uh, but let's let's just sticking with sort of the list of people who have already declared, do you see anybody on that list who, who stands out as as somebody who could be a legitimate possibility to, to win the election? I think I think Sayyid Mohammed. Um, okay. Despite despite my initial um, misgivings, I mean, the the Guardian Council came out a couple of days ago and clarified, I think for the first time in decades, that yes, active duty generals can win, can can run in uh, the election, and this has been a big point of contention. And the only reason this was clarified was because Saeed Mohammed had announced only a couple of days before. And there had been this big controversy a couple months ago when he had met with the Guardian Council, a member of the Guardian Council, and he had to clarify, you know, we weren't talking about anything related to the upcoming election. Though I don't know if anyone really uh, believed that. Um, he's the big favorite of the conservative media. There was a big push to push him out of complete obscurity into a place where, if he, even if he isn't polling well, like, the national media wants to kind of report on his every move because... He's this anomaly um, as an active duty member of the military, which has never run before for the presidency. I think almost certainly I cannot foresee a situation where he is unapproved by the Guardian Council, considering all of these uh, paths that they have put out all seemingly specifically for him. And if he is now, he has a very difficult path of the presidency. Um, right now he's polling at, I think, 1%. I think that was the last thing that he did, but um, I, I, it's difficult to talk about like uh, polling as representative, pulling this far out certainly about how representative that would be of your win, because Ahmadinejad, um, he started pulling out I think one point seven percent, I think that was the exact percentage, and he through the debates and through being exposed to the media was able to rocket you know to the presidency, and I think Mohammed is expecting that kind of magic to work for him in some way. Okay. Um, but I think that remains to be seen. But that's the, that's the only big campaign that I can really see out of the declared candidates so far, because otherwise they're like these absolute nobodies who used to be, used to be governors like 10 years <laughs> right, ago right. or MPs 20 years ago. Like none of these people are, are getting anywhere, I think. <laughs> well, let's, all right. So then let's get into some of the potential candidates who are out there. And I don't want to, I mean, there are, I have a couple people I, I, want to you know get your take on um but i don't want to like you know get you going in any particular direction yet so we'll save those and i i also want to kind of hold off talking about ahmadinejad because i think that's he's a special case let's say mm -hmm. um, so uh, you know he's definitely you know definitely uh, he's definitely one you know a potential candidate certainly um and a, a you know polling very well as you've as you've written about and as you've said um uh, what do you make of some of the other potential candidates? And, and you know, 
Uh, Galibov is you've already mentioned him, but maybe you know you can get into his history of losing presidential elections, which is extensive. Um, and there are certainly a few other kind of prominent uh, politicians who are weighing, I think, whether or not to to throw their hats in the ring. Who are who are some of the big names that you see uh, doing that? The, the big names that I for, probably foresee actually get into the race is, pro- as you said, uh, Gali Buff and I would say also uh, Jahrumi, and I would also say Jahangiri, but I don't think the latter two are, are going to get uh, much of anywhere. I mean, Gali Buff, it, it's I only say that because he has a very cushy position right now as parliamentary speaker. But this man has ran for president, I think, more times than any candidate in Iranian history. And he's gotten approved <laughs> that many times as well. So it'd be kind of an anomaly if he didn't run. Um, I mean, he constantly sees himself as the conservative favorite. And he is, to some extent, the conservative favorite. He would. <laughs> I cannot foresee a situation in which he wouldn't be approved because he's been approved every single time otherwise. And I think he want he would want to capitalize on the popularity that he currently has with the Iranian public, which he's never had before. But he's also in the past, uh, in 2013, for instance, um, when he was running against Rouhani for the first time, he had a pretty significant polling lead at one point. But as the debates went on, and people realized that oh. I'm, I'm getting nothing out of this. Um, <laughs> yeah, this guy's he, giving me nothing. nothing. The, the, like, it, he's not terribly inspiring. I, I see him in debates. I think he's going to run into the same problems where he has this initial polling lead when he runs at a certain point. And then I think, because it's happened every single time, he's going to tank. And it's just going to Yeah, be he re- I mean, he really run. is the master of like flaming out. Yeah, toward the end of the election, that's that's become his his go to. Yeah, uh, the other one, uh, Mohammad Javad Azori Jahomi, he has been a big point of, of talk because he is. I mean, he's called the young minister. I, th- I believe he's the first cabinet minister to ever be born after the Zagreb Republic was founded. He's grew up his entire life uh, within uh, the existence of the Zagreb Republic. Um, he's considered very internet. Savvy, he's, uh, I guess, connected with the youth. I mean, that's what they're saying. I don't know if that's actually true. Um, he, he's meant to be this fresh face on Iranian politics, especially because Iranian voters have said recently that military background isn't that important. But what is very important is the age of the candidate, because a lot of politicians in Iran right now, I mean, there are people in the assembly of experts who are like 90 they're like 80. <laughs> a lot of the a lot of these a lot of people in Iranian politics have been in Iranian politics since 1979 and have not ceased since. Uh, like these are not like these are not my words. These are people who have written in the Iranian media. Like it's very comparable to like a geriatric clinic in a lot of respects. It, it, well, I mean, last you know the last election. This is a guy I want to talk about a little bit later, so I don't want to get too far into it. But when uh, you know when Ebrahim Raisi ran. Uh, and people started to talk about him as a potential, you know, having a potential future as, you know, a successor to Khamenei. It was like, you know, he's very young. Well, I mean, he's 60. <laughs> like, 
that, that's what we're talking young, about. But this is the young kind of in context. comparison. Yeah, it's like relatively okay, but you know, he's not a, he's not like a young guy. I mean, he's re- almost retirement age in most contexts. But okay, uh, but yeah, so <laughs> right. So I mean, yeah, you have Jaromi is is sort of the young candidate, but this is a clearly a, a, a society that or a, polit- a political system that values experience shall we say yeah um, and and I'm, uh, yeah and, and just the, the main <laughs> obstacle I think if he doesn't like because there is a law currently in front of the parliament that would raise the current presidential age I have no idea why they're considering this considering what Iranian voters have said but they're considering raising the minimum age to be president to from 21 to 40 and I believe that would exclude Jahrome from the presidency because I think he's yeah he was born in eighty two so he's yeah. thirty eight right now yeah, yeah so he would not be able to run on that and I think that law is going to pass so he may just be excluded just because of this new law um, and the other one and the other candidate who I think is going to run because this man is on a mission from God that I could not understand Ishaq Jahangiri. <laughs> Um, who is the current vice president. Uh, Jahangiri is a fascinating figure to me because this man is possibly the most loyal politician I've ever seen in Iranian politics. Um, in 2017, he ran... He, he So just for listeners at home who kind of, I guess, need a comparison, Jahangiri was Rouhani's vice president, but he ran against him in 2017 purely as a means to be a second Rouhani who would like like support him and defend him against the other candidates yeah i mean that was just to have him on the debate stage right to sort of like yeah. shield rohani uh from criticism I think. yeah i mean just imagine if like biden did that in 2016 that he felt <laughs> obama was so weak that i'm gonna run as a third party candidate just to say that obama was a great guy it was a really strange stunt and it served to it was kind of clear to a lot of um, people in the Iranian media that, okay, he's raising his profile so that he can run in 2021 as his successor to Rouhani. And at the time, this was not a terrible idea because Rouhani was extremely popular with the Iranian <laughs> public. And if you could just coast on that, guaranteed presidency continued. Right, politics. right. But of course, now Rouhani is one of the most hated men in Iran. But Jan Giri has not gotten the, the memo that a lot of other reformist politicians even have gotten that you the jcpo is dead like you cannot defend this policy but in every single interview with john that john goody gives to the media he says that the rohani administration has achieved more than any other administration in iran history that the jcpoa is a, is a monumental achievement that uh you know he he, he defends his own um president with a lot of vigor <laughs> and um i think he's going to try to run because that's that's what he only wants to do, and I don't think he's going to get anywhere, even if he does get approved. Because everybody is on the same page at this point that you can't defend the JCPOA at the very least in the form that it was negotiated in, and that's what Jan Giri is doing. And it's just it's the political. I don't even know what you call it. He just has no political acumen. I feel like. It's really strange to say. <laughs> uh, he feels it feels like he's he is you know even if he did have political argument he's locked in basically to running as Rouhani's successor and that as you say is not not a winning formula at this point with uh, with Rouhani at ten percent popularity and uh, people you know frustrated over how that's worked out. Yeah. Um, 
There are a, a few other names of sort of, you know, the, the names that people may have heard of really big shots in Iranian politics. Um, and, and you know, a couple of them uh, that we haven't mentioned, of course, is uh, Javad Zarif, Iranian foreign minister, who would be um, even more than Jahangiri would be the logical successor to Rouhani. And of course, again, it's not a great place to be right now. And he's already... Uh, said a couple of times that he wouldn't be a candidate for president. Do you see any chance that he'll rethink things, or is he is he going to step back? Uh, pretty, I, I'd say extremely slight. I mean, it seems like I mean Zarif tried to resign a couple of times during Rouhani's administration because of how like um, <laughs> he, he felt sidelined. He didn't feel like he was actually able to do his job. He seems very dedicated to the Foreign Service and the Foreign Service alone. And that would, like doing presidential politicking, I don't think he really seems to, uh, you know, want to do that. Um, And he's made it clear more than any other potential candidate, even more than Khatami at this point, that he's not going to run. But of course, the reformists... Zarif, by virtue of being an independent, not a reformist or a conservative, is still quite popular despite the JCPOA's failures. But the reformists know that all their candidates are either extremely unpopular or if they're not unpopular, they're completely unknown. So they see Zarif as, you know, their meal ticket out that they could uh, potentially win the presidency based on that. But... Yeah, uh, I don't think Zarif is going to run and I think the reformists are probably going to have to find someone else to uh, unite behind. The other person, the other name um, I wanted to throw out here who is um, on on paper in terms of a resume has some of the strongest kind of credentials to run for president of, of anybody in Iran. Uh, and that's the former Speaker of Parliament, Ali Lederjani, uh, and you know he has he's been around forever. He was you know uh, he's been at the highest levels. He served on the Supreme National Security Council. Um, he's been a cabinet minister. Again, he's been Speaker of the Parliament. He was Speaker of Parliament for a long time, like twelve years. Um, but is like my understanding is like a black hole of charisma. We talked about charisma with some of these <laughs> IRGC guys. Larajani is like. Uh, negative charisma and on top of that there seems to be some internal uh, sort of resentment toward the Larajani family uh, that I can't quite parse out but they don't seem to be very popular within the system anymore Um, you know is there a chance he would run um, and you know, is, is there any chance he could somehow emerge despite again this sort of lack of political capabilities? Ali Larijani, I mean, despite my problems with the Larijani family, um, he seems to be someone who is quite honest with himself. Um, in 2005, he ran for president and he got five percent of the vote, and then unlike other people who ran in the same year. Ladijani said it. Okay, okay, I, I I get the idea. People don't like me. <laughs> Message I'm just received. Gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna continue running for parliament where I know that I'm popular, and he continued doing that, and he did that for many years. And additionally, when he felt that his politics were changing, he shifted coalitions from the conservatives to in the direction of the reformists, 
And I think since he's left office, there really hasn't been an inclination, uh, at least for what I can see, to to run again. And speaking of the Lottie Johnny family, I mean, they're extremely well-connected um, in politics, in the judiciary, um, in uh, the field of medicine. They're very wealthy. And Ahmadinejad, one of the letters that kind of has helped him skyrocket popularity was him criticizing the Lottie Johnny family who put some of his associates in jail through their positions in the judiciary. So him being associated with that kind of opens him up to a lot of criticism from voters who see him as, at the very least, by proxy, um, guilty of, of overreaching his bounds and emblematic of the corruption that is so um, widespread, perceived as widespread uh, in the Iranian government. So I don't think it would benefit him. And I think Ali also sees that it probably would have, wouldn't benefit him since he retired very nicely and there's no need to rock the boat. <laughs> you, I mean, you mentioned his family. Sadek Ladajani, his brother, uh, was uh, the uh, previously chief justice. He was uh, replaced in that role uh, by Ebrahim Raisi. Uh, and is still chairman of the Expediency Council, which is a, a body that sort of, um, you know, oversees uh, Parliament to some extent, or kind of, uh, uh, you know, make sure everything stays on the straight and narrow, ideologically speaking. Um, and, and at one time, I think could have been talked about as maybe the leading candidate to. Uh, succeed Khamenei as supreme leader. I don't think that's the case anymore. But again, that we can sort of, uh, if we have a couple minutes at the end, we can talk about that. Um, the the one other person, of course, that that I wanted to mention, I've said this a couple of times now, is Ahmadinejad. And you've talked about his popularity. He's emerged as sort of the, the guy who can criticize everybody. Um, he poses a few... Issues. Before we actually get into that, though, I wanted to ask you to sort of describe Ahmadinejad's politics, because I think he offers a uh, an interesting um, case for Americans who hear people talk about like the reformists or the moderates and then the conservatives and you kind of map in your head when you're you're you know in the US you kind of map that onto uh, what those words mean in an American context you know conservative means republican it means cutting taxes and you know cutting budgets and uh, all these other things Ahmadinejad is popular partly for his uh, you know, sort of, you know, being above the fray or kind of outside the uh, the discredited coalitions. He's also, I think, somewhat popular in comparison to Rouhani for the fact that his economic policy was w way more progressive uh, than Rouhani's has been. Rouhani's has been very kind of neoliberal uh, budget cutting and, and austerity. And Ahmadinejad was not. Uh, can you sort of you know, describe the differences in those approaches and, and why, you know, why that uh, kind of works in an Iranian context and doesn't work necessarily. And, uh, you know, the, the combination of his kind of hardline social views and uh, foreign policy doesn't uh, necessarily lend itself to, to understanding him in the, in the American context. Yeah, I mean, Ahmadinejad, I know that there are some descriptions of him as 
uh, like a neoconservative or a neo-principalist. And I think even if it might be confusing to hear that term as an American, it does provide at least a slight designation away from it because it is a philosophy in Iranian politics that while the regular conservatives, the establishment conservatives, um, are obviously very close to the clerical establishment, um, are obviously very uh, dependent on the image of that, uh, Iranian neoconservatives, well, with obviously a great respect toward the Islamic clerical establishment in Iran, there is more of an emphasis on the elected officials and that there should be a religious character of the republic, but the clerics are not necessarily the be-all and the end-all from which Iran should take its uh, political philosophy from. And additionally, Ahmadinejad himself um, differentiated himself from a lot of conservatives, at least in his first term, by emphasizing uh, giving a lot of Iran's oil wealth to the poor, um, trying to kind of put himself between uh, the forces of neoliberal economics and uh, the rest of um, Iran. The issue is is that he ran into problems pretty much immediately trying to get this kind of thing done. And while he put up a very public, um, I, I guess, uh, argument with people in his own coalition about this, um, eventually he, he did capitulate. And uh, his two administrations were marked by uh, tons of privatization, rolling back uh, labor rights, um, uh, scandals involving members of his administration and uh, banking corruption. Um, but his political philosophy, at the very least in the public sense, stayed the same, um, emphasizing more uh, of a, I guess, I don't know if the term would be just a friendly face toward uh, the Iranian public where he wanted to give them and to share in some of Iran's wealth. Um, but now he has kind of abandoned working with the conservatives in really any way um, in trying to emphasize that while he used to be very argumentative and very uh, uh, boisterous, now he is much more conciliatory. Now he is uh, has much more emphasis on trying to uh, mend uh, uh, debacles, I guess, uh, between different nations. I mean, he offered to solve the Saudi Arabia and Yemen war if MBS uh, would have him. Um, he, he's changed his diplomatic position that he used to have from America, at the very least in tone. Um, while he's changed his tone, uh, his political philosophy has stayed uh, kind of consistent in that way. Um, you know, as as we've as I've said, you know, hinted at, there are a lot of problems that that I think Ahmadinejad's potential candidacy would pose to the system. Um, one has to do uh, with, I think, stability. Um, you know, there's a there's a strong you know above everything else, above every other consideration, high turnout or, uh, you know, giving the people a, a chance to kind of air their views and opinions as an outlet. Um, the main thing that that 
the establishment wants Khamenei and, and the clerical establishment want uh, out of these elections, out of their politics, is is something that runs sort of in a stable way. Um, there's a lot of baggage that comes with Ahmadinejad, obviously going back to the 2009 election and the Green Movement. Um, you know, the, he he dredges up some things that that I wonder if the establishment would rather uh, not get dredged up. The second problem as i see it and and again i'd like you to you know sort of comment on this is the fact that ahmadinejad tried to run in 2017 when when rouhani was up for re-election and he his candidacy was rejected by the guardians council ostensibly on the, the grounds of um you know he he these corruption allegations and you know some other questions about his uh conduct but you know obviously you would think a lot of the the history again the 2009 protests his uh, falling out with Khamenei in in his second term a lot of things must have played into that decision it, it seems to me that allowing him to run if the guardian council were to allow him to run this time on some level that would be admitting a mistake or a, a, a kind of uh the that that you're kind of contradicting the decision that was taken in 2017 and i don't know if if the system can accommodate that i don't know you, you can you know uh you know comment on these things and, and whether you think he could actually get past the guardians council this time yeah the rocking the boat thing, it, it kind of, it, it's very strange to see his, his renewed popularity in that context because the fact that he rocked the boat so much was because Iranian voters rejected the idea that he was victorious um, in a very visible, very public way um, with, you know, thousands of protesters in the streets, not just in Iran, but outside. But now the fact that he presented such a threat to these our republican system inadvertently that has become a source of his renewed popularity with the Iranian public um and you, you talk about the guardian council banning him in 2017 and whether or not he's going to um be reelect or be approved in 2021 uh yeah i don't think it's going to happen for him um i have never heard of anyone uh who has been rejected in the past for the presidency being approved again afterward. It's pretty much just a done deal. Like, as you said, it would admit that he had made a mistake at some point and that you can be in some way right for one year and then, I guess, uh, good to go the other year. And that would raise questions about favoritism and whether or not they are setting up certain candidates to win um, outside of the context of whether or not they're good for the Islamic Republic as an institution. And after 2009, you know, with Musavi, the Guardian Council has been very stringent that they don't want anything like this to happen again, where someone could run that could rock the boat as Musavi did. And that means that they are completely willing to uh, disqualify people who were even president at one point. I mean, not just Ahmadinejad has been banned from running uh, at one point. I mean, Rafsanjani did the same thing that year. And he was also disqualified. Right, he was also disqualified, yeah. 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 Um, the Guardian Council is not conservative with what, with the people that it, it disqualifies. It will do it if they think there is even a shred of, of a threat uh, that is presented to the system as a whole. And Ahmadinejad, considering how much 
people in the institutions in Iran are afraid of him, publicly afraid of him, it's not going to happen for him. I, he's going to get, I think, inevitably he's going to run. He's going to make a big show of registering. And the Guardian Council will put the hammer down. He's disqualified. And his supporters are going to have to go somewhere else, though I'm not sure where at this current time. I want to I want to talk um the the last person I wanted to say something about was Raisi and and that's sort of more in the context of uh what his future is and you know maybe not in the presidency but in a higher office uh, um but before before we discuss him uh, briefly to kind of end things um what do you do you have any a sense of how this election is going to go and not I'm not necessarily saying like do you have a candidate that you're uh, predicting will win uh, it could just be like you know it's going to be a low turnout kind of nothing election or it's going to be uh, you know kind of uh, lead to unrest any any prediction of anything uh, surrounding this election where do you what are you expecting to happen I think a conservative is going to win the election um I, I can't see either the Guardian Council is going to make it so there are almost no reformists in the in the electoral process, or the reformist candidate who does get in is going to be so ineffective, so unknown to the public that they have no chance of of kind of gaining any sort of voter base. And I mean, you can just see it in the polling. I mean, traditionally conservative figures like, at least associated with the movement, like Ahmadinejad, like Ibrahim Raisi, are currently topping some of the polls, even if undecideds are still at least uh, more than that percentage-wise. It doesn't seem like it's going to be the reformists here, even if they were um, allowed to run in that way. So now again, the the last person um, I, I, I wanted to bring up was Raisi. Uh, he ran for president in 2017. Was you know uh, soundly beaten by, by Rouhani, um, but had been looked at as sort of a rising star in the uh, the system after the election. You know, in 2019, he was made chief justice, which is very powerful unelected albeit unelected position that that uh, you know could be a perch uh, from which he could uh, potentially be successor to Khamenei um, my question I guess is where do you you know do you view him as the likely successor to Khamenei and is he going to have to account uh, at some level for losing the 2017 election so substantially i mean it seems to be it seems to me to be kind of a black mark on his record for a guy who is who may be supreme leader to be able to say you know he was trounced in a in a presidential election and i know he said he won't he's not running this time uh part of me wonders though if he can get away with that if he cannot run and just sort of wait out and you know how many obviously is you know not in great health he's getting up there uh and succeed him and not have people say you know this is the guy who lost by 20 points to rohani and he's now you know our our supreme leader what's what's up with that do you do you view him as the likely successor and do you think that's going to be a, an issue i think yeah I think Khamenei is in a very difficult position. Um, 
because after uh, Khomeini died, there was, I mean, this big debacle about how they were going to elect the next one. And they initially tried to elect somebody who they thought had the same level of um, scholarly acumen that Khomeini did. But the candidate that they eventually settled on was someone who, I mean, was even more geriatric than Khamenei was. He was born in the 1800s. Um, like, they eventually <laughs> Sorry, realized... I don't mean that, to laugh, but yes. Okay. <laughs> no, but, like, like it was it was not... The, 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 the Assembly of Experts knew that this was not, like, a good idea. They needed to do someone with more qualifications than just scholarly acumen. So Khamenei, as someone who had been elected with, you know absurd margins of victory in the previous presidential elections. Someone who had been a very popular figure uh, for his um, conduct as president during the war. That would have been someone who could be a proper supreme leader successor. Right. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, they sort of fudged on the, the qualifications. I mean, Rafsanjani was, you know, behind the scenes, like working the system and, and you know, managing it. And they finally just decided to pretend that Khamenei had the qualifications and could be the Supreme Leader. And that was it. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, but Ebrahim Raisi is kind of in that same mold as Khamenei, except for one critical thing. And that, as he said, Raisi, when he did run, when he did run, did not get you know, uh, gangbusters margins uh, against Rouhani, he was beaten pretty resoundingly. Um, Iranian voters across every single demographic uh, rejected him uh, with pretty significant margins. And while if you re-ran that election race, he would probably win, that's still, you know, the arrow has been fired. Uh, those results uh, were there for everyone to see. And appointing him as Chief Justice, Khamenei, I think, is trying to make him into a more popular figure. And to some extent, it's worked. Raisi has seen his approval ratings rise because of a media campaign that has presented him as kind of clearing out corruption um, throughout the Iranian society. But how much that is going to work, um, considering, I think, as you said, Khamenei is getting up there, uh, whether or not Raisi is going to be able to turn the tide in that kind of time to the point where he is as popular a figure as Khamenei was when he was appointed supreme leader. Um, I think, yeah, uh, it's it's not, there's not really a good choice uh, for um, Khamenei to pick because otherwise, I mean, the other candidates he, that could potentially be picked, um, either they are extremely old, while they are qualified in scholarly terms, they are extremely old, or they are people who um, Khamenei would ever pick, you know, in a million years. Like, I think people who floated like Rouhani, which definitely is not going to happen. Um, I think... Yeah. Well, Rouhani would have the same problem. He doesn't have the qualifications... Of course. To, so, to, to hold that office. So it, it's just... Yeah. Raisi is the best candidate f from Khamenei's perspective. And Khamenei is trying to make him into the mold of the person that Khamenei was before he was elected supreme leader. But there is a very limited time frame, I think, in which Khamenei is going to be able to do that. And whether or not it's going to be completely successful uh, remains to be seen, I think. Um, uh, we also should mention, I feel like it's incumbent to mention any time Raisi's name comes up, is he was involved in maybe the most brutal 
uh, incident in in Iranian history so far, uh, the 1988 mass execution of political prisoners, which thousands of people uh, were were executed, and he was a, a key figure uh, in that. And that baggage would would undoubtedly come up, you would think, uh, if he is uh, sort of. Uh, put forward as the next supreme leader, and I, you know, f- again for a for a political environment in which uh, people are straining against the establishment to some degree, I'm not sure you know how how much you want to dredge up some of these kinds of things. I mean, the 1988 murders are they're, they're a point of discussion because the politicians who have actually come out and condemned them in recent times, like Museve, um, who was prime minister at the time. I mean, these people, they've been sent to house arrest without charge. They're not a part of the process anymore. Um, you really don't see it discussed, at least in the Iranian political sphere, as something, when it is discussed, it's of course presented as this kind of necessary thing that was done, this kind of righteous thing that was done. Um, but it's not so much of a uh, a point of contention that it might come up as much as it probably should come up. Um, yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I I don't know that it'll be an issue, but mostly, mostly, I just never like to talk about Racy without mentioning uh, oh, yeah, that yeah, he's yeah, got yeah, yeah. you know thousands of people's blood on his hands. He's which not great. Is, is an important he... important thing to mention, I think. Yeah. Um. So okay, uh, I I think that's a good place to leave it with sort of the uh, you know a little bit of speculation about what may happen longer term when uh, Khamenei is is no longer among us, uh, let's say, um, and and the presidential election, you know, we'll we'll have to see. I think uh, maybe we can can do this again a little closer to the vote once the Guardian Council is weighed in. It's really uh, you know I I feel in a in a sense almost like we're uh, just kind of spitting in the wind at this point because it's hard to handicap an Iranian political contest until you've had the Guardian Council weigh in and, and uh, kind of whittle the field down. So, so uh, yeah, we can we can revisit this maybe when there's a, a clearer idea of who exactly is is running. Oh sure, yeah, it, it's a bit difficult. Like as you say, I mean like. The big candidates who you assume sometimes are going to make it through. I mean, they get completely disqualified, and then the whole thing blows up. It's, uh, but it's. I think it's. It's a. It's an interesting election, not just because uh, of the incumbent, not you know, obviously being term limited, uh, but the the un unrest or the sort of. Uh, you know the sort of lack of direction that Iranian politics has, and the the feelings of hostility, I think, make it a, a very wide open contest. Even in the constriction, uh, you know, understanding that it will be managed so that only a very narrow, relatively narrow band of ideas are allowed into the process. Oh, sure. I mean, everyone wants to be the person who rebukes Rouhani's legacy. Just everybody has a different idea of how they want to do it. All right. On that note, Seamus, uh, thank you very much again for coming on the show. Uh, the substack is malakafzali.substack.com. Uh, I'll link to that in the show description. Is there anything else, any other place people should uh, uh, look for your, your stuff? 
Um, the Substack is where you can read most of my long-form writing, but uh, me and Kayvon Shafi have a podcast miniseries currently going called The Greatest Sin, where we talk about the history of foreign intervention in Iran, and you can find that on Spotify and SoundCloud uh, if you want to listen to it as it uh, progresses. Excellent. All right. Well, I'll try to put a I'll put a link to that in the show description as well, so people can check that out. Um, again, Seamus, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, let's try to do this again when we have a, a, a better handle on exactly who's going to be involved in this race. Oh, sure. It was my pleasure to be on. <laughs> All right. Uh, once again, I want to thank Seamus Malik Afsili for coming on the program to discuss uh, the f- state of the field heading into Iran's June presidential election. Uh, I think there's a lot more to say about this. Uh, certainly there will be more to say when the Guardian Council weighs in uh, and winnows the field down, especially if Ahmadinejad, as seems likely, uh, is not permitted to run. Uh, there will be much more to say. And I think we can, uh, you know, certainly we only scratch the surface in terms of discussing uh, the state of Iran's politics more broadly. And so I look forward uh, to having Seamus back on the program at some point to kind of uh, go into more detail when we can, uh, you know, maybe uh, spend a little less time talking about individual candidates and a little more time talking about the kind of underpinnings of the race. Uh, So that's something to look forward to. Uh, As always, uh, until next time, thank you for listening and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.